Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Thought I'd pick an easy topic today. Go straight to Revelation. Um, and if you've been a Christian for a little length of time, you've, your head's probably filled with a whole lot of stuff about Revelation which may not be accurate. Um, all the stuff that's really been butchered around what, how do we interpret Revelation, what does it mean. Uh, we've had crazy ideas that are nothing but heresies. I'm going to sh- shoot pretty straight today. Um, and we're going to explore one church that Jesus speaks to in the book of Revelation and what, what is the thing that the Spirit is saying to us out of their story and their experience, their example. You know, we live in a, certainly a culture today where we are inundated with a whole lot of belief systems that don't fit the gospel. Do you feel that as a Christian? So things around sexuality, gender, around spiritual beliefs, about mixing other spiritual concepts or, or worship activities and practices with Christianity, a whole lot of things that don't really fit the pure core gospel, which is... We choose to follow Jesus and his teachings alone. So what he says about any area of life, that's where our allegiance goes, no matter what the culture around us says. But we are influenced by the culture around us. And as you'll you'll see in a few moments, this church that we're going to talk about in Pergamon um, had this challenge. They were being influenced by the culture and the gospel is shifting the way that they were practicing following Jesus in a culture filled with other um, idols and gods and emperor worship, um, sexual practices. There was a whole lot of stuff going on in their broader culture and it was impacting this one church that lived there at the time 2,000 years ago. I don't think we're any different. Uh, You know, sometimes I think as Christians today, we might assume that, oh, it's not like it used to be. You know, you hear Christians say that or you read it, on their post, you know, how our culture shifted. Personally, I think every generation of Christians has to wrestle with, are we truly identifying with Jesus in our everyday thinking and practices or not? How much of the culture has impacted our belief system and we've unintentionally drifted from the true gospel? Now, I understand my tone here. I know people struggle with a whole range of things. I'm as human as everybody else. I'm not perfect. But one thing I do know is that to get the best out of life as a Christian, you have to commit every day to following what Jesus asks us to do. He's the designer and the sustainer of all life. And so I think every generation goes through it. And certainly from the very start of what's called the church, so after Jesus ascended back into heaven the very first gentile churches were struggling with this issue within seven to ten years after that event of jesus ascending back into heaven and again i would say this is not we might feel like you know with government decisions um, with policies with um, liberalism with uh, agendas that are being pushed on us we might feel like we're the only christians ever going through it we're not and this is what, what God does is he invites us, if you want to be part of God's family, it's an open invitation. This is not about criticising, but it's the fact that we're different. We have a different way of living. 
And so I want to unpack historically a story, a true story of a small church, much smaller than this one, that was living in Pergamon at the time, which is in modern-day Turkey. So let's head there, shall we? Let's uh, read the text. Now, I know the last few weeks there's been discussion on which translation gets mentioned at the start of the service. I've gone for the most easy one to read, okay? So on the New Living Translation. So it's on the screen, but if you have a preferred translation, open up your smart device or your hard copy. Now, just a very quick context. John, who personally knew Jesus, saw his death, saw him after the resurrection, watched him ascend into heaven. John's the closest human relationally to Jesus. They had a very close relationship. As persecution is starting to roll out throughout the Roman Empire for these little Christian congregations, they were originally called the Way, not Church, persecution was starting to happen. And so Jesus unveils, that's what the word revelation means, he unveils for John to see what will happen in the immediate future and what his followers, what Jesus' followers, the church or the way, need to understand about the circumstances they will face that will be very difficult for them to be faithful to Jesus. And so John has this what we call a vision or an unpacking. And when this, this vision starts to happen for John, he's writing it down because he knows he needs to send it to the churches who are spread through modern-day Turkey. It's called Asia Minor in the ancient world. So it was a mixture of um, Greek speakers, Roman speakers, you know, Italian speakers, Turkey speakers. So it's called Asia Minor if you ever read a Bible commentary or read your footnotes in the study Bible. But in our language, it's sort of modern-day Turkey, near the Aegean Sea, north from the capital of modern-day Turkey. So Ephesus, you can go there today. Uh, Pergamon's there. There's a whole range of cities. And so the Christian gospel had spread there and people are following Jesus. So Jesus speaks to seven churches right at the start of the writing. And he has a very direct message, an individual message for each of those seven churches. So this is the third church amongst those seven. So let's read the text from verse 12 in Revelation chapter 2. So again, this is Jesus speaking to John. He says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamon. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in a city where Satan has his throne. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? We'll come back to that. Yet you have remained loyal to me. So that's a, that's a big, big combination from Jesus, right? You're living amongst all this demonic, idol, other gods, worship, but you're loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you in the, in the uh, Satan city. I'll come back to his story in a minute as well. So we, someone's already been martyred within their congregation for their faith and they still remain faithful to Jesus. They did not swap their God effectively. Verse 14, but I have a few complaints. I love, in the, I love the way this puts it here. So Jesus is commending them. You're under enormous pressure. The culture around you has gone crazy. It's difficult to keep faithful to me. One of you has been killed for your belief in me already, but you've been loyal. But I have a couple of complaints, right? Now, it's it's very, in the original Greek that it's written in, it's, it's soft language. Some of the other churches get actually a firm rebuke from Jesus. This one's a bit softer. 
So here's the complaints. You tolerate some among you who teach like that of Balaam, who showed Balak, this is from an Old Testament story, how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. So we've got two things there in this first complaint. There's this teaching existing in the congregation where some people are following that you can actually mix a bit of religion with, with Christianity. You can pull some other spiritual stuff around us. It doesn't really hurt. And in that practice, they were offering um, meat to other gods and then they could eat it. In fact, it was cheaper to buy that meat at the market. And so Jesus says, well, that's a complaint. Don't do that. Plus, the way they worshipped some of these gods, which I'll mention in a minute, included sexual practices. And so Jesus actually highlights you can't mix any other religion and sex matters in Christianity. It matters. And so here we have a very direct complaint from Jesus because they'd allowed some of this teaching to seep into their church and unintentionally drift. Verse uh, 15. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans who follow the same teaching. Now, I'll, I'll talk about them in a moment. We don't really know much about what they were teaching, but they get mentioned a few times in the New Testament as false teachers. So verse uh, 16, Repent of your sin, or I will come suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice that's a repeat from verse 12 about the sword in his mouth. Verse 17, Anyone who has ears must listen to the Spirit and understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I would present to you today, that's true for us today. That's why we have it written down. And one of the reasons we're reading it is the Holy Spirit wants to remind us about being loyal and faithful to Jesus. To everyone who is victorious, I'll give some of the manna that's been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Confused? I'll try and explain some of it. I'm confused as you are, don't worry. I'm going to start by showing you a little video clip because a lot of archaeology is being done in this area. So I'll move off to the side and just show you that next slide for me, Melissa, which is actually a video. So they've actually done stacks of archaeological digging and this is a reconstruction of what the city looked like in the time that John writes to the church. You can see it's perched up on a hilltop and all these, these are all different temples to different gods. Uh, the one down on the, on the left, oh, sorry, yeah, you're, you're right, that we're going to zoom in. That's been reconstructed and actually sits in Berlin in a museum at the moment. But those other little buildings up there are all different temples to gods. They had a big amphitheater there. You can see the natural fall of the, of the hillside. And so living here as a small house church with a plethora of other gods that could be worshipped, they believe that this particular building you're seeing right now was actually a place of sacrifice towards Zeus, who was their war god. And so there's one of his, probably one of his temples where they would practice worship even to an emperor. By the time John actually writes this, this particular city had a temple built to Emperor Augustus and they worshipped that emperor as if he was a god or a demigod. You can go to the next slide for me. Thanks, thanks, Mel. So this was part of what's called the Adelaide Empire. So they had their own kingdom. 
Um, they went really well. They, they believe it was founded in about 1100 years BC. Um, they, it was basically a Greek kingdom. Um, they had very close relationships just across the Aegean Sea with Athens, um, and, but they had their own succession line of kings. Now, when the Roman Empire entered into modern-day Turkey or their area and started to create, obviously, warfare and try and take all these cities, then things went really quickly bad. In fact, some of their kings made poor decisions. They tried to keep political alliances with Rome. And if you're interested, it's easy to find all the information about the history of the city and Rome. So their last king was actually a bit of a, a recluse, maybe even an introvert. He didn't really want to deal with all this political turmoil, trying to keep Rome happy, trying to keep the kingdom. So he actually just gave the whole city to Rome. And this, this happened just before John writes this letter. So for 400 years after the death of Alexander the Great, the Greek Empire sort of crumbled and struggled and Rome pushed up into modern-day Turkey and really took most of these cities and took control. And Rome put in their own governor in this city to, to control. So they had a mixture of gods. They could worship Greek gods. You could worship Roman gods. And archaeologists tell us by the time that John writes this, they actually had um, worship to the emperor. And we know about 100 years after John actually dies, they built a second emperor t temple to another Roman emperor because the imperial cult is what it's called they would often deify a Roman emperor after they died. And it wasn't really pushed throughout the whole empire. Some cities would do it, some wouldn't. But those that did, it became normal that you had to make allegiance to this dead emperor as if he was one of the many gods. That's why in the New Testament we get the phrase, Jesus is Lord, because they would say, Caesar is Lord. And you'd have to, have, you'd have to uh, worship Caesar, the dead one, and even make sacrifice to him and say that he was the Lord of all lords. That's why we have this language in the latter part of the New Testament, in the epistles, and in Revelation, that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of lords and King of all kings. But that's because this, these house churches in these cities were living amongst all these other gods and emperor worship as if he was a god. They had Zeus um, they had um, Athena, who's the daughter of Zeus, so they're both war gods. They would make sacrifices and uh, practice sexuality to try and get their god to help them win battles. Um, they had this um, medicine god, which is very interesting. Um, five acres, they believe. Not exactly the same, but like a hospital in our language. So people from the whole empire would come because they had this god Asclepius, as it's pronounced, is the healing god. But get the, get the Christianity Old Testament imagery here. The, the image of this god was a serpent on a stick. To remind you of an Old Testament story where you know, Moses raises up and the people get healed. And so we have these, you can see the spiritual powers are taking on Yahweh and Jesus by the way these other gods are being worshipped and deified. And in fact, uh, they had some crazy belief systems with this particular healing god. You can go to, go to the next slide, Mel. Um, so that you can go and see the ruins today. You can actually walk around them. And there's about 100,000 people live on the plateau below still today. Um, there are churches there today. Um, so you can, you can actually go there. But it's about 1,000 feet above where this city was. 
and people still lived under it. But getting back to what I was saying, about 100,000 people lived there, up to 200,000, some archaeologists say, at the time that John writes his letter. But in this, in this um, town where they have this healing God, you would actually, they believed that snakes would be resurrected because they'd find snake skins. And so they would, you could go to this sort of temple that was a hospital, you'd have to make your sacrifices um, by killing a pig. Um, you could sleep in the temple, and if the live snakes that they worshipped in that temple slithered over you, they say you could get healed. They had a pool of water. Um, because the snakes went in and out of water, they believed if you drank it, you could get healed. Now, can you imagine being a Christian <laughs> and you're living amongst all this? In fact, some of the Christians probably became Christians out of those particular belief systems. I've been to some other countries, fortunately, where they worship many other gods, even today, and I've, I've been in one Christian's home. This woman became a Christian, but she added Jesus to all the other gods. And this is effectively what's going on here. So Jesus, through John, writes to them, commends them, but actually has a couple of complaints because the broader culture is making a difference in what is the true message of God and what is the pure or true gospel. So you have all this stuff going on. Um, I told you I've mentioned, we'll go through some of the verses and I'll explain some of it because when I first read it, I thought, what on earth, white stones, Antipas, who's he? So if you've got your Bibles, follow along. Just put the next slide up, Mel. I'll put the text back on the screen for you. So let's look at verse, verse 13. Jesus starts by saying, this is the message of the one who has a sword in his mouth. This is war language, right? This is defense. This is if we want to be part of God's kingdom, Jesus will enforce his kingdom at some point. And it's Old Testament imagery where they talk about the sword of God. And again, you can research that. But what, what we haven't read today, I just wanted you to note, is Jesus has already mentioned this point in Revelation in verse 16, but chapter 1. And it gets repeated again if you read all of Revelation. Uh, it'll keep you up at night, by the way. Forget Lord of the Rings. Um, read the rest of Revelation. But it gets repeated again because Jesus knows they're going to come under extreme persecution. Many Christians, if they remain faithful to him and do not worship any other deity or emperor, will be killed for their faith. And in fact, Antipas is the first martyr that this happens to in this area. We know Stephen was stoned to death prior. So we have this war-like language. And in fact, um, theologians say there was this concept about the Roman emperor, whoever it was, because you know obviously the emperors died and they replaced them. But they have this idea that the Roman emperor gave governors who lived in these cities to run the city on behalf of the empire, this imagery of the right to execute anyone that they saw fit was causing trouble. They didn't have a law system like we do. And so they had this sword imagery for the Roman governor, the local person controlling the area on behalf of the empire. So you've got some imagery happening here. That's why Jesus keeps repeating that actually his sword is bigger, right? It's a bit like Crocodile Dundee. That's not a knife, right? That in the end... Right, there's going to be suffering for these churches, but in the end, Jesus will enforce his kingdom, and it's going to happen. So 
The interesting thing, though, here he says, I know the city you live in. And we don't have time, but if you read the rest of the seven little letters to the different churches, most of them actually, Jesus says, I'm paraphrasing, but I know what you've been up to. You better stop it. Right? He's pretty direct, right at the front. I know your deeds is the old King James language. Um, but basically, I know you're doing the wrong, you are doing the wrong thing. He doesn't actually say that to this particular church. He just says, I know where you live. It's almost an acknowledgement of all these different spiritual powers and idols and forces and religious practices that include hey, what you eat, when you eat, your sexual practices. All this stuff is being intertwined and Jesus is saying, I know the conditions you find yourself in. He's acknowledging that. It's like a form of encouragement. And this is important because he's telling he's fully aware and he uses this language about Satan's throne. Now, it's not a literal throne, but it's like a metaphor because that, that really big building that in Berlin they've reconstructed, um, which you can go and visit, at, they have actually a full museum of Pergamon in Germany. Um, but they reconstructed this this. Um, Pergamon Temple, which they think was the place where sacrifices would take place to Zeus. And so Jesus is using this metaphor. There's so much demonic activity going on here. It's not like a literal throne. Most theologians say that's not the point. This is figurative speech. But there's so much of this anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-kingdom options going on. He's aware of the conditions in which he finds him, they find themselves in as followers and disciples of God. And I would say that's what Jesus says to us today. He's fully aware of the conditions that we face politically, with all these different agendas, and it's not just happening here. Other countries of the world have it much worse than we do. But Jesus is fully aware. It doesn't catch him off guard. Now, I told you this pagan thing about Satan's throne and a Cepheus. Then he says, but you remain true or loyal. You don't renounce me or your faith, even when Antipas, my, wit, my faithful witness, was put to death in the city where Satan lives. Now, who's Antipas? Well, the Bible doesn't explain it. There are other early Christian writings, so parchments, scrolls, that Christians actually kept different things like sermons, rec other records. So he's actually mentioned in very early Christian documents, a few hundred years after Revelation was written. But what we're told through those other non-biblical documents is he was probably a disciple of John. John probably asked him to go there to lead the church in Pergamon and he was killed because he would not bow down and worship the emperor and the other gods. And in fact, one ancient document records his death as being burnt alive on a brazen bull, which was the symbol of their, one of their gods. So if that, if that is accurate, if that information is accurate, so it's not in the Bible, but it's pretty close to the actual event written by some people who would have seen it or knew of the event, if that's accurate, that's what Jesus is talking about there, that their church leader was actually martyred because he refused to actually follow the broader culture in spiritual practice and sexual practice and, and everything else. So humanly speaking, this church is doing it tough. They're living in extreme conditions as people who want to be faithful to Yahweh and his son, Jesus Christ, which is what we want to do today. The fact that, that um, 
Jesus commends them and says, I understand the conditions in which you're living in. He's trying to encourage them, but then he says, but there's a couple of things you haven't taken care of, a few complaints. So nevertheless, he has a few complaints, which there's two listed. So let's look at the first one. He says that there's some among you that hold to the teaching. This is an Old Testament story, which, again, because of time, feel free to look up. It's in Numbers 25, if you're interested, if you're taking notes. Numbers, an Old Testament book, um, chapter 25. Effectively, Balaam taught Balak to accept other people who were still worshipping other gods in the Old Testament era, that they could marry some of the Jewish Israelite men who only worshipped Yahweh. So, of course, once they intermarried and you have a household worshipping different gods, the, the husbands allowed their wives to bring those idols in to the home and it started to seep into the practices within the home and then, of course, the village and the broader culture. And Jesus is saying to the church at Revelation, it's the same sort of problem here. You can't, you can't just pick and choose elements of the gospel that you think are good and other bits you're not, you're not that comfortable with or you don't think can be, can be true. Why would God ask us not to do that? And so with that type of attitude, they were allowing these practices to come into their church and people were teaching it or at least influencing that small house church with some of these, I will call them, anti-kingdom, anti-Christ teachings. And I'm not throwing stuff, I'm not one, I mean, for those of you who don't know me, those of you who do know me, I was going to say I hope you agree, but I'm sure you will. I'm not a critic. I'm not a person that throws stones at people who are not Christians. The Bible tells me unless you know God and have God in your life and have his Holy Spirit, you can't understand the things of God, right? Their eyes, Paul tells us, they're like blind eyes. They can't see what we see. So this is not... I'm not, this is not a talk about us against anyone else. Please understand that. This is a talk about we have to make sure, we, that if we are Christians, we are following the true, pure gospel and not accepting things that are outside of what God has asked us to do as his children. And that's because it's for our health, right? The way I say it, God's the designer of all things. Even our sexuality and our gender. God designed everything. And so the, to get the best out of life is to follow the creator's pattern and what he's asking us to do and also empowering us to do by his Holy Spirit, even in the face of being told it's wrong or that we are trying, people are trying to force us to do other things, which is their experience in this particular church. And some of you will feel it's your experience in your workplace, in your home, in politics, right? It, it, it's part of the experience that we face as a Christian, but it's not us against them. It's us saying, God has given me through grace and mercy an understanding of what he wants from me, and it's actually for my good. I choose this life. I don't expect everyone else to understand it because they don't know God. But this is the life I choose, and if I choose this discipleship life, then this is, I, I can't pick and choose what I keep, and what I discard, or even what I add into Christianity. That's not the deal, right? You're either all in or you're not. That's discipleship. 
And that's really what Jesus is saying to this church, even though he's not really firmly rebuking them. He's saying, I've got a complaint because there's two things happening. There's two influences within your congregation someone's got to put a stop to because it's not my gospel. You can't bring in other spiritual practices like New Age or, or other gods or you can't bring in other sexual practices. Sexuality is supposed to be pure. God has a design for it. If you let that seep in, it's, gonna, it's not going to be what the kingdom is not that. There are consequences for playing with that and it's not as if God's against anybody. I don't believe that. For God so loved the whole cosmos that he gave his only son is the literal translation. He loved, he loved the whole creation. He didn't just love the church or people that would become Christians. He loves the whole thing that he made. That's why he sent Jesus. So again, my tone is not them against us. It's us. Are we fully dedicated and understand the health, the strength, the joy that comes from keeping pure gospel, not just when we gather and talk about it on a Sunday, but in our private lives, in our individual lives. And we all face pressure to conform to a culture that is not a godly culture. That's, not, that's been happening since the day the church started. And even in the Old Testament, it was happening for the Jews, you know, way before Jesus was born. It's one of the, one of the dynamics we carry is we are different. If you follow God, then we have a different way of living, not because we're against anyone else, but because this is the unique way that God has called us to live out his, his promise in our faith. So that, that's the, I want you to hear that tone. So Antipas, probably the leader, has been killed, but they didn't scatter. They said, we're going to stay true. God commit, Jesus commends them for that. So... Let's go to the next verse, the second complaint. I said that the Nicolaitans, they're mentioned in a couple of other places. In, they're actually mentioned in the book of Acts. But again, we're not fully told what they were teaching. And so there's a whole lot of crazy stuff out there that some Christians have written. We really don't know. I'm just telling you up straight. If you, if you research it and you read, well, I'm teaching this, teaching that, maybe, maybe not. We don't, there's no record of it anywhere. So... We don't know, but what Jesus is telling this church is a repetition of what he just mentioned about Balaam and Balak, and that is you can't intermingle with other religions and you have to watch your sexual practices. He says, when you read the text, he says, in the same way, so in the, exactly the same problem. So whatever they were teaching, they were having evil deeds, and so Jesus is, is saying to them, you have to deal with this. What's interesting, and again, we don't have time, but if you read the first little letter in Revelation to the church at Ephesus, Jesus commends them for how they were dealing with this same group. So this little religious idea, which was common in, in um, Greek, some Greek and Italian early churches would take what's called Gnosticism, and in, that would seep into their Christian teaching, and that is that you know, everything has a spiritual, the chair you're sitting on is not the real chair. There's a spiritual chair you're sitting on. You just can't see it. They had these really sort of crazy ideas, right? And so when you read like First Peter, First John, Third John, that's what they're actually dealing with, with these crazy ideas and them saying, in Third John, John actually says, don't even talk to them. Have nothing to do with them because it's not the pure gospel. And so whatever this group was teaching, it was around the same issues 
of actually corroding the true gospel and unintentionally drifting their beliefs and therefore their practices as disciples of Christ. And so whatever it was, we don't know, but this was having an impact. Now, verse 16, Jesus says, repent. Let me just pause there for a second. I know I'm running out of time really quickly here. Um, I've only got another 68 points, so we'll be fine. Uh, Actually, I was in a Kenyan church once and someone actually said something like that and we're already three hours in. So Um, so anyway, so what was happening is with with this whole concept about repentance, we, I think we have this um, Hollywood idea, you know, with the person standing with the sandwich board, repent, you know. They have that little sort of, John 3, 16, they walk around the streets. Sue and I are in the city, I think it was about this time last year, and we saw um, someone on a bicycle that had a sandwich board with the whole thing on it, right? That's not, that doesn't help what that word really means. <laughs> All this stuff that we see on media and stuff, and they make us look like idiots. Repentance doesn't, mean, doesn't even mean change your direction, by the way. That gets taught a lot. But it's a word called metanoia, which means... With the knowledge you've just heard, change your thinking. That's literally what it means, right? Metanoia, meta as in a big, new big idea. Jesus is saying your sexuality matters. Jesus is saying you can't take other spiritual ideas and put them in the kingdom of God. So now you've got those big ideas in your head, change how you think. That's literally what it means, right? Metanoia means, so repentance isn't, oh, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry, and then we do it again. Because that's often, I think, what we think through, again, Hollywood, movies, other teachings. But what Jesus is saying, you've heard me just tell you these two big hot potato topics. So change how you think about it. That's what he's saying. So repentance, he says, you better repent. Or now this is interesting. I'm going to come and fight. Hello. You want Jesus to turn up at Uni Hill Church and have a fight with us? No, that's what I think. Exactly. That's the right answer, by the way. No. But what, what most people miss, even in English, it's in the Greek and in English, it's translated very correctly, notice the pronoun change. Most people miss it. He says, I will come and I, I will come to you, so that's the group, I'll fight them. Did you notice that? So he's not fighting the whole group. But that's how much he feels about these topics. Our Lord and Saviour feels so strongly he's going to deal with those who lead us outside of the pure gospel. And he's not fighting against all of us, but against them. And that has strong implications that Jesus wants his church to be pure in its teaching and its practices in the kingdom of God. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is written to one church, but probably every church since then has read this letter. So we were just worshipping with a song about come Holy Spirit, you know, fill us, teach us your ways. We better be listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. Not just the ancient churches in Turkey, our church, right here, right now. Now then Jesus says, because the one who's victorious, I'll give them a... um, some of the hidden manna, also a bit of a reference to this. There's like a mixed metaphor here. It's obviously about the manna that God provided to the children of Israel supernaturally while they're in the wilderness, so feeding them. 
but it's an, what they, in theological language, eschatological term. That is, the, when Jesus does return to the earth and enforces his kingdom and gathers his people, that is the great banquet feast, right? You know that language? And in fact, our communion today was a sample. It's a pretty pitiful sample in a little plastic cup, but it's going to be a banqueting feast like you've never experienced. So there's these two ideas coincided. He's telling this church that if you endure this and you fix these faulty teachings and practices, I am going to, you will make it into the kingdom of God at the final judgment of all things and you'll be part of that whole big banquet. So that's sort of the language here. But then he says, and I'll, I'll give that person, so the one who perseveres and endures, so stays faithful to the true gospel, he'll give them a white stone with a name on it that only they know what it says. Well, I feel like I'm on who wants to be in a hot seat and I have to phone a friend as I have no, no idea. I've done a, quite a bit of research, but that caught me, right? Now, most theologians, they say this. There's probably at least three layers of meaning with that. So, again, it's like a mixed metaphor, which they would have understood in their culture. We don't practice this stuff I'm about to tell you. So one of them is um, with white stones. The promise is giving them the white stone is jury verdicts in that ancient culture would often pull out a white stone if they found someone not guilty. They give you a black stone if you were. So that's one idea that was in that culture, right? So people would have known that automatic association to that concept. I've been found not guilty. I'm free. So Jesus' forgiveness of our sins, white stone. Another, another idea which was practiced in that culture is um, part of this, you know, the Olympic Games, but that, the origins of that actually came out of worshipping different gods. They'd actually have athletic events that their gods would supposedly help someone be a victor and a champion in. And so um, if you were a victor at an event or, or a good athlete in that culture, you were given a white stone to get into the next event, right? So there's another possible meaning is this idea that you had admission and the jury verdict. So there are a whole lot of things going on here, but the point is the name that no one else knows, it's not like most theologians don't think it's not, it's not you getting a new name, like, you know, my name's Greg and all of a sudden Jesus calls me Bruce. That's not what's going to happen. It's his name, right? His name because it says the name, not names, you know, as in many on different stones, the name, but only those who, this is really sort of like a trans or paraphrase, only those who know him will recognise the name. No one else will get it. So that's unpacking it. So let me land this for you because you're probably thinking, what was Greg eating for dinner last night? My heart is that we dedicate ourselves afresh to what God asks us to do for our own benefit and for his glory. And all the stuff in our culture about gender and, you know, this trans craziness that's going on and all this other stuff, they don't understand what we understand. And I'm not forcing anyone to choose what they do. But what I'm saying is if we are following Jesus, there's only one true gospel 
and what you do with your gender, your genitals matters to God. He created it. And what we do in terms of other religious practice, you know, can we let a bit of new age, can we, you know, meditate, do yoga? This is a pure gospel that Christ expects us to follow, not because he's mad, but because it's the only and best way to live for him. There's fruit, there's good fruit out of choosing a life that follows Jesus if you're a Christian. Non-Christians don't understand it. So here's my points very quickly because I've totally run out of time. Uh, the ne- next slide. The church has always lived in the face of opposition. I, I think that's the truth. Always strange teachings around religion, sexuality, uh, you know, food practices, healing. You know, the enemy's still at work in the world. We have a whole lot of crazy stuff that gets taught and assumed as if it's true with no thought of the consequences even if you go down that line of what the consequences will be long-term. Now, as Christians, we've chosen to live a different, unique life and we invite anyone who wants to participate in following Jesus alongside us, right? So, again, this is not, I'm not saying them against us. We are the church. That literally means we're the called-out gathering. In English, we don't speak like that, right? So church is not a building. It's not this facility. I know we call it Uni Hill Church, but we are the church, the humans, you and me. And when we gather as called out by God from that life to this one, that's when we are the church, right now. When you gather with other Christians in a small group or for a prayer meeting or a Bible study, you are the church. You don't need the whole church there as in all of us. It's a term about an assembly of people who have been called out from and to something else. That's discipleship, right? So we're called out from the societies we live in. We still function in them. We still dwell in them. But we're called into the exclusive way of following Jesus. It is exclusive. We, we can't, we are, we are different from other people. Always have been, God, Yahweh followers, Jesus' disciples, have always been different from the rest of the culture. And we don't get to modify the gospel based on the challenges of our environment or even our personal preferences. That's not the gospel, right? I hope you still love me after this, but uh, I'm nearly finished. So I'll get the, I'll get the worship team to come up. Slide, slide, the next slide, thank you. Persecution and suffering. Now this, this, I thought, thought, how can I encapsulate what do we learn from what this church experienced and what Jesus said to them? I think it shows us just because we're suffering doesn't automatically validate everything we believe and do. <laughs> so they just had, if, they, if the ancient records are right and Andy Pass was one of their key leaders, if not their leader, just martyred and they're still allowing bad practices to seep into their belief system, hang on a minute, you'd think that would be the, the warning sign. But no, it puts you under pressure, right? Puts you under pressure to conform to the broader culture you can't get a job because you don't worship this God. We know from other ancient teachings that was common. Uh, Christians, these early Christians missed out on employment. They were dying because of starvation. They had nowhere to live. People wouldn't allow them to live in their homes because they weren't worshipping Zeus or the emperor. I mean, this is real stuff. But what it taught me and what I hope it teaches you, just because we suffer doesn't mean we've got everything lined up. That's why we have to stop, and this is the challenge I'm throwing out to all of us. You have don't believe everything you think. 
you have to reaffirm and really almost rededicate your life to Christ if you catch yourself being influenced in a way that is against the gospel of God. We have to do it. And we, 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 can't, we shouldn't be unapologetic. We're not doing it for other people. We're doing it for us. There's a whole lot of weird churches out there that believe a whole range of crazy stuff. And the, the broader culture that doesn't know God, they're, they're heading down a direction. Good night. Where, where's it going to end? We don't know, right? But for us, we know where it's going to end if we're faithful. Because that's the story of this church, right? So just because we're suffering, being persecuted, doesn't mean we've got it all right. So we need to make sure we do. We need to keep each other accountable. Call out the stuff that is not biblical. And encourage each other to stay true to the, to the gospel, the pure gospel. Don't pick and choose elements of the discipleship lifestyle that you don't like. Don't let the culture tell us we shouldn't be doing stuff, right? We've got to stay faithful to Jesus by living as a faithful witness, right? Because what you think, what you believe, ends up coming out in your practice in your everyday life. And so why don't you stand with me? I better, I better finish. Time has really gone. and I'm, I think even YouTube will complain this sermon went too long. But I want you to hear my heart today as followers of Jesus that God loves us so much, he's protecting us by saying, don't do that. Don't go down that track. This is not how I created and designed humans to live. And we understand it because we have the Holy Spirit. So here's my challenge. I want you to close your eyes, just you and God, and I'm not going to call anyone out to the front. But I want it to be a serious moment to reassess your beliefs about your gender, your sexuality, other spiritual ideas that maybe you've been exposed to or heard that sound good, they must be right. Why wouldn't God allow this? It's hard work to actually rethink through all the influences that are on our lives. But we have to do it. If you really want to be the man or woman of God that you envisaged when you first said yes to God, I have to ask you the question, what are you doing to get yourself there? Are you directing yourself and shaping your own life so you will live all of your days as a faithful, loyal servant of Jesus Christ? No one else can do it for you. The Holy Spirit can convict you. The Word of God can teach you. Leaders within the church family can minister to you. But you have to shape yourself in the moments, in the private individual moments when no one else is around. If not, you'll be drifting unintentionally. So all I'm asking you to do today is to rededicate yourself to the true gospel of Jesus. And if you need help, seek help. Don't. There's nothing spiritual about not getting help. Talking to someone who's got confidence, will champion you, will help journey with you if you have a struggle in any of the areas I've mentioned. Don't, we should never shame someone who needs help. That is, not, that is not the gospel either. But will you renew your declaration that Jesus is the only one? Not our culture to shape us, 
not your friends, even though their intentions may be good, not even your own ability to think because you'll deceive yourself. So Father, my prayer is that you create in us a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within us. Embrace us with your love, Lord. Not This is not about condemnation, but your love, Father God, to transform us and to keep us on a pure gospel path. Lord, our heart goes out to people who don't know you and, and think they'll find happiness or answers, solutions in so-called freedom of expression. But Lord, the shape that you made us to live out, your Holy Spirit that lives in us, is guiding us, directing us, and we receive your truth today. In Jesus' name, amen.